and uh, uh, we are from Castlebar in County Mayo in Ireland, if you give us the next slide. My wife and I have been married over 25 years, and uh, we have one son, Quinn, who's age nine, and we live in a little town called Castlebar. We actually live outside of town in a little area called Snugborough. Sounds nice. It's all snuggly and everything. And uh, my goal today is just to tell you a little bit about our future plans and how we met in the climate in Ireland as we get through this. Now, it's taken, we've been there almost six years, and it's literally taken that long for people to begin to trust us in town, ask questions about the Bible, where we go to church, get to know us, and that we were going to actually uh, uh, be around. The Irish are naturally skeptical about people coming in, and it also took us that long to learn a bit about the culture, too. So with that, let's talk about the spiritual, or how we met, I guess, first. I honestly, when I was putting this together, I couldn't remember <laughs> how we met. It was like, it was at least six or seven years ago before a lot of folks were here. And I may have just rang up the phone and, and popped in and met with the missions board. Nancy will probably know more about that than, than I would. But I'm so grateful to have met you guys. We do feel at home every time we, we walk through the door. Uh, every time I come in, I always mess up somebody's name and, and do all that. So please accept my apologies in doing that. I will. I will learn uh, who you are. But we are grateful to be a part in serving and representing, really, Prairie View in Ireland as your missionaries over there. So you can know that. So for the next slide is, oh, yes, this, the spiritual climate in Ireland. Now, if you've ever been to Ireland, usually I ask... But I quit asking because on the trip out west with my good friend Mark, who, who I used to ask, has anybody ever been to Ireland? And he would always raise his hand. But Mark's only been to Ireland because he was in the Air Force and his plane landed in Shannon to refuel and then took off again. I'm like, Mark, that doesn't count. doesn't count. You haven't been there. You haven't done it. But if you've ever been to Ireland, everyone is very nice and it's absolutely beautiful and green and lush. But the spiritual climate is actually very, very dark. Now, what you're seeing behind me here is a little town called Knock, like Knock. And the story goes, in 1879, 15 people, some of them children, actually saw this vision of Joseph, Mary, the Apostle John, and a baby lamb. And from that, this whole town has popped up. This complete compound has come up. People pilgrimage to come and see these statues that have been erected because of it. Outside of the town, there's statues. You can buy water bottles for holy water, rosary beads. There's different stalls and businesses selling every type of knick-knack you want. In 1980, Pope John Paul II actually visited this place. And because he was visiting, they erected a full-on cathedral to do Mass in. There's confession buildings. Holy water fountains line the side of the road. Mass is performed regularly, and as you see up here, Mary's paraded around on a pallet driver throughout the compound as they say the Hail Marys. None of what you see up here is biblical whatsoever. This line of thinking, though, permeates the full culture of what's going on in Ireland. And this is what we face. This is the issues that we face. When we tell somebody we're not Catholic, they immediately think we're Jehovah's Witnesses. And when I tell them I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, they... They almost flinch a little bit because they don't, they don't have a box to put us in. There's this big Catholic box, this little tiny Jehovah's Witness box, and then part of our ministry is building a box saying, look, this is what the Bible is about. And sometimes it can be very difficult. I get, and really, the reality is, why would you believe me? Why would you believe this American guy coming into town? And my goal is to have them open this up and match it up against a lifetime of indoctrination. 
Does this match up with what you're being taught? That's my goal. Ireland has the lowest percentage of Bible-believing Christians of any English-speaking country in the world. We're very few in number. I can say with great certainty that every Christian in Ireland knows that I'm preaching here today. That's how few we are. When we have a conference, it's everybody. <laughs> Look, here you have a bit of a choice to attend church. You can be a church shopper, if you will. Don't do that. This is a great church. But in Ireland, folks really don't have anywhere to turn. And then this is where we come in. If anybody's ever been to Mammoth Cave, and you go down into the cave with your light on, and then the guide says, everybody shut their light off, and he flicks a little match, and the match lights up the whole cave. That's what we want to be. We want to be that little match, that light that lights up all of Ireland. So what have we done so far? You guys might know some of this. Some of the ministries we have. We preach every other Sunday, teach on Thursdays. We have the usual pastoral visits to the hospital and stuff. But street evangelism, outreach, that's my, that's my, that's my baby, if you will. Uh, a long time ago, a pastor had taught me what I call the five-minute rule. And the five-minute rule states, if I'm in your presence for five minutes or more, and I don't know whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to hear about Jesus. It's that plain and simple. And that's opened up so many doors to getting the gospel into people. My wife is a graphic designer. Matter of fact, if you go out to the little table out there, you can get some free goodies. You can get some trifolds about us, a wonderful little bookmark for your Bible so you can pray for us out there, and uh, all kinds of stuff. She does our brochures, our websites, flyers. She also teaches the youth group for a bunch of different churches, and she has her girls that come over. I was teaching the guys' youth group, but they've all grown up, so I don't have any more boys. So it's all just girls now. We do special events. We bring in speakers. And then some of the other ministries that we do, uh, we do kids clubs in the summer. I do a one-hour radio program in town called Bible Talk, which has been great. We've been asked to go to Romania to preach. Uh, I work, I write uh, for the newspaper a little bit about the pro-life movement. If you guys don't know this or not, this is kind of interesting, but the abortion is actually illegal in Ireland. The Eighth Amendment in the Constitution gives the unborn rights as humans. But there's a big movement out right now to repeal the Eighth Amendment. So there's a pro-choice, pro-life thing going on. So we write articles for the local newspaper defending these babies, if you will. So through all of this, our church has grown. If you give us the next one. Uh, we have our own little building in the center of town. It's been rebuilt on the inside. My wife designed that beautiful logo and the signage. Uh, people, this has given us a lot of credibility. I go in town and say, hey, this is where we're with that church. And, oh, what's that about? Oh, what do you guys do in there? How many chickens have you sacrificed? No, <laughs> just kidding. But it has opened up conversations with people to allow us to talk to them about what we're doing in town. It's a perfect location for everything, too. It's almost dead in the center of town. And uh, people have to walk up that corridor. What you're seeing there is St. Patrick's Day. It's a national holiday in Ireland. And people have to walk by there and we give them drinks or do face painting and all kinds of stuff outside. And what you see outside there is my buddy Larry talking to the parents about the gospel as the children are getting their face painted. So it's a perfect location to do all that stuff. Now with that, guys, I'm just going to give you a little bit about me. Because this didn't come with, without its good set of growing pains, if you will. Um, when I was there, it was really all about me when I first got there. What could I do to impress the folks that invited us to come? 
how could I rise up the chain of command with it all? Right? Even the first day, he wanted to show the folks in town, I'm American, let's show you how to evangelize. You know, I'm up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, the town doesn't open till 10, so it was a ghost town for the first three hours. I had to learn the culture. I had to learn what was going on, right, with it all. So with that, I was in John chapter 3, and John the Baptist is one of my favorite biblical characters. Never did a miracle, never wrote a book of the Bible, yet Jesus called him the greatest among men. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist does the one job that he was signed up to do. He says, all you have to do is point to the Messiah when he shows up. That's it. That's your job. And he does it perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. So perfectly that John the Baptist's followers, all but a few of them, actually go and follow Jesus. And the group that remains says, hey, that guy you pointed to? Everybody's going to follow him. Like, we're losing our ministry. We're losing our followers here. What are we going to do? And what I love is what John the Baptist didn't do. He didn't go, okay, let's get a committee together. Uh, you're going to do the marketing plan. I'll go to the Jerusalem Gazette and I'll tell them, hey, I really didn't mean it. And we'll try to get a bunch of these guys back and get this ministry back on track. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He says, my joy is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And when I read that, I realized everything I was doing was wrong. That's missions, isn't it? He must increase. I must decrease. That's Christianity, isn't it? Status became rubbish to me. Christ became everything. What if God wanted to be glorified through my embarrassment? It's happened. (laughs) It's happened in here. I miss up the names of people so many times. It's just crazy. Am I willing to let God do that? So with all that in mind, we were asked to consider a life change of ministry. We were asked to lead a new church planting in a new town. It's one of those towns without an evangelical presence. It's a town called Boyle. It's about an hour away from where we're at, and it's in the next county over. So with this, guys, we need your help. Okay? I need your prayers. And I know missionaries stand up here and say, yeah, will you pray for us? Will you pray for us? Think about what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you personally to walk into the throne room of the creator of the universe and ask for his blessing on this endeavor. Will you do that for us? This is no small thing. I'm asking you to do that for the ministry going there. With that, we need some people to come with us. Maybe that's you. I know about eight, ten years ago, I was sitting where you were, and a man stood up and said, I'm going to China on missions, and da-da-da. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go too. And that turned into this, and us becoming full-time missionaries in our lives in the field. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you could give three years of your life and come over and help us with this new church plan. Maybe, Maybe you're a sender. Maybe you're not the one to go down into the well, but maybe you're one that can hold that rope at the top while we're down there. And we could use your financial help. Obviously, to start a new church plant, it takes a bit of finances. There's places out on the table. If you want to give, please consider doing that. But missions isn't a one-way street. Okay? We need, we need your communication. Nancy's kind enough to put our newsletter up on the board every month. You can see what's going on with us. But if you want to get that directly in your inbox, there's a sign-up sheet out on the table. Throw your name and your email out there. I'll only sell it once. 
No, I'm just kidding. I won't sell your email at all. <laughs> but you will get our, uh, you'll be connected. But what that does is it gives you the chance to tell us what to pray for for you. Maybe something's happening in your life. Hey, I need you to, I need you to enter the throne room for me. Let's continue doing that. It's a two-way street with it. Okay? So with that, guys, <clears throat> let's open up the Word of God. We're going to be in John chapter 3, but before we go there, let's just, let's just pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time as we open up your word. I just pray that you'll increase through this and we can stand back and decrease. That your words shine through. That your Holy Spirit is just shining in this room today. And your word penetrates the hearts and the minds of those, those of us that need to hear it, Father. We love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what I'm going to read from today is John chapter 3, but this comes from... Uh, this comes from my son and I reading our Bible together. If you're not reading with your kids, you can start doing that anytime you feel like doing that. But we were reading through the book of John. And uh, I'm going to focus on something we came across in our reading. Maybe today you're going to go, oh, hey, I never thought of that before. Or, you know, uh, wow, that's clear to me now. How many times have you done that when you're reading your Bible? And you've read the, you probably read the passage 50 times. But on time number 51, you're like, huh. Never saw that before. Happens all the time to me. And hopefully maybe today we can do something like that. So in John chapter 3, this guy named Nicodemus comes up to visit. Now Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's really high up. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, right? Eventually he becomes a believer later on, you could read about it. He risks his reputation and even his own life by providing a burial spot for Jesus himself. But Nicodemus gets into this discussion, if you will, with Jesus. And through it all, Jesus says, hey, you know what? You need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You need to be born from above. Nicodemus doesn't quite get it, right? In in a parallel passage, he says, how can I enter my, my mother's womb a second time? He doesn't get it. But let's start in verse 10. Actually, verse 9, he says, how can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel? Don't you know these things? Jesus replied. I assure you, we speak what we know. We testify to what we've seen. But you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven. Jesus says... No one's been to heaven except me. Sorry about that. I'm the only eyewitness that can explain what heaven's like. Because I came from there. But you don't even believe when I talk to you about earthly things. How will you believe if I tell you about the things of heaven? You need to understand this, Nicodemus. You're a teacher. And you don't get it. Then he says something really interesting in verse 14. Look at this. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. What's this business about Moses? What's he talking about? You're comparing yourself to Moses? What does that have to do with Jesus? How does, what does that have to do with being born again? Well, to find out the answer to that, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to have to go back to Numbers chapter 21. 
Now, Numbers is the fourth book in your Old Testament. So if you turn back to Numbers chapter 21, what's happening here is the Israelites are walking across the desert. Moses is taking them through the Red Sea and they're walking across the desert. They get up against the Canaanites and they defeat the Canaanites and wipe them clean away. And in verse 4 of Numbers 21, we start there. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. God told Moses... Go around Edom. You're not going through it. And when he did that, the people became impatient. And they spoke out against God himself and God's mouthpiece, God's anointed on earth, Moses. Let me ask you, have you ever done that? Something doesn't go your way. Maybe you speak out against God. I can picture these guys. This Moses guy, does he really... Speak for God. I mean, Rick, you might, you might do better. You know, Moses spoke, speaks with this lisp. God, well, you don't understand. The path is shorter if we go right through. We just defeated the Canaanites. We can do it again. And this food, God, come on. We just detest it. It's just not the best. What are you doing? Are you even listening, God? We become impatient, don't we? Ungrateful. I mean, this is from the beginning of time. I mean, Adam and Eve had the whole world, and they still wanted more. They still wanted more. In Casabar, my little town, we have about four or five pizza places. One of them is owned by some friends of mine who are Polish. They opened it up, and it's called Pizza Brothers. It's obviously two brothers who started a beautiful wood-fired pizza place, and they have absolutely delicious pizza. There's another pizza place that could never, ever open up in America. And it's a chain in Ireland called Apache Pizza. You understand now why they could never open it up in America. Well, a few weeks back, uh, my wife and my son, we drove to Dublin. Now, Dublin's about a three-hour drive from our house. But three hours driving in Ireland's a little bit different than driving in America. We have a lot of roundabouts, tractors in the road, trucks in the road. It's only two lanes, so you're driving slow and doing it. So I drove three hours out to the airport. We picked up Genesis' cousin, and we drove the three hours back to our house. And then we took her from there that same day out to one of the islands and drove another three or four hours. And we did about 400 miles in all that day. We get back to the house, and I said, you know what, I'll just go. It's a Friday night, but I'll go down, I'll get us pizza for dinner, and we'll be pretty set. So I went down to my good friends at Pizza Brothers, waited in the queue for everything, I'm sorry, waited in the line for everything, and uh, got these wonderfully beautiful pizzas. I take one of the pizzas back to my son, and he likes a bacon pizza. And I am not joking when I say, when I opened up this bacon pizza, a rainbow came out of it. It might have been the greatest bacon pizza I have ever seen in my life. Then I walked and gave the other two pizzas to Genesis and her cousin. And I came back to Quinn and I said, Quinn, how's your pizza? And he said, I'd rather have Apache. That little twitch, you know, the parents get when those things go wrong. It just hit me. And I'll be honest with you. My response probably wasn't the best. But my son, to his credit 
realized what he had said and apologized absolutely immediately to what he said. But it's gratitude, isn't it? It's ingratitude, really. I imagine God just feeling similar, but a thousand times (laughs) more similar when he says to these Israelites, I brought you guys out of slavery. Pharaoh was the cruelest man to ever walk the earth. And I took you away from him. He made you kill your male babies in the river. He made you make bricks with no straw every day. I parted the the Red Sea for you. You walked through on dry land. I provide food for you. I provided water from a rock. I destroyed the largest army in the world so you didn't have to look behind your back as you crossed the desert. And on top of that, I'm promising you a land flowing with milk and honey. But you're ungrateful and you grumble against me. Look at how God responds in verse 6. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. My son may be the most grateful person on the, on the planet that there are no snakes in Ireland. I'm just kidding. There are no snakes in Ireland, but don't go putting poisonous snakes in anybody's bed or anything like that. Look at verse 7. Then the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he'll take away the snakes from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone who's bitten looks at it, he'll recover. So Moses made a bronze snake, mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake... He recovered. The people realized something. We got a problem. We messed up. We spoke against God and we spoke against God's anointed. And they humbled themselves and turned to the only one that could help them. And the only one that could help them was the one they grumbled against, wasn't it? God isn't pleased with grumbling. We cannot question God's intent. He wanted them to go around Edom for a reason. God graciously provides help through it all, though. He helps those that are humble. He helps those that ask for help. Where do you turn? This is a great question. When you really mess up and you sin against God, do you just run away from him? Or do you turn back to him and say, you're the only one that can help me with this. I know I messed up against you. But they literally threw themselves at the mercy of the court, didn't they? They didn't try to explain away their sin. They confessed what they did was wrong. They realized their dilemma. They knew God punishes sin. He has to, doesn't he? He's just. God is just. Paul tells us the wages of sin is... Thank you. You guys are reading your Bibles. Good on you. If you persist in your sin, you earn something. You earn death. Just like you earn a paycheck. When you go to work and you do that work, you get something positive. You get a paycheck. When you sin against God, you earn something. You earn death. It will kill you. It will destroy you. God has to punish it. In 1 John chapter 3, he says sin is the breaking of God's law. No amount of snake traps are going to help you. Only turning to the one who can.
The Israelites turned in humility to the only one that they could. The one that they grumbled about was literally the only one that could help them. But isn't it interesting what they asked for and what they got? Hmm? Moses, man, we screwed up here. We really did. We're so stupid. Will you ask God to forgive our stupidity? Will you intercede for us and ask him to take the snakes away? Take these poisonous snakes and just get rid of them all together. That's not what they got, though, was it? Let me ask you, have you ever asked God for something but got something different? You ever asked him to do something in your life, but he did it different? Never doubt what God's doing. He's going to answer you one of three ways when you ask him for something. He'll say yes, he'll say no, or he'll say later. The one that created you knows exactly what you need. You don't think so. But you need to know. God's goal for you might be different than your goal for you. Charles Spurgeon once said, It's the loss of your first love that makes you seek the comfort of your own body instead of the prosperity of your souls. We need to understand, God cares more for your holiness than he cares for your happiness. He does care for your happiness, but he cares more for you becoming more like Jesus. That's his goal. His goal is for you to be more like him. And God provides a way out. He provides a way out from all of these snakes in our lives, from all of the sin in our lives. But he leaves that reminder there. That he's the one to be glorified. And he leaves that reminder of the snakes in the camp. So you'll remember who you are. In relation to him. That you need him. What would have happened if God had just taken all the snakes away? Like poof. Okay. You guys asked for it. You got it. I've taken them all away. What would have happened? Well they would have forgotten what God did for him in the first place. They would have forgotten what God did for them to live. They've already proven themselves ungrateful. I mean, literally, food is falling from the sky every day. And they're complaining about it. He provides water coming from a dry rock. And they're complaining about it. If ingratitude would have easily reared its ugly head again. If the snakes would have just disappeared. Now listen, the day is going to come, and I cannot wait for this day, when all the sin is removed. No more pain. No more tears. He's going to take all those snakes away. But for now, we remain in this cursed and fallen world, and we remain here for a reason. We forget so quickly. I mean, we want to be comfortable. Remember, God wants your soul. He doesn't want your comfort. He wants you. He wants every bit of you. So God devises this plan. He devises this plan for people to live. Because it's not about you. It's about him. He make this bronze snake, Moses, put it on a pole in the middle of camp. And if somebody gets bit, they can come, look upon the snake, and they're going to recover. They're going to live. But that required something if you got bit by a snake. If you're sitting in your tent and you got bit, that required faith. On your end. You had to believe 
What Moses said was right. You had to believe Moses was the mouthpiece for God. And you had to believe what God did by putting the snake on a pole would save you. If you were, that's superstition. No, you have to believe what God says is true. You have to believe what he did is sufficient for your life. What if you're in that tent and you got bit and you didn't believe? Ah, that's just lousy superstition. Besides that, Ezekiel in the tent next door is going to laugh at me. It's just a bronze snake on a pole. Really, does Mo? I don't know. This Moses thing, he's just, I'm just going to sit here in my tent and rest. Besides, ah, it's just a crazy superstition. What happened to that person? Well, it's a poisonous snake. According to the Bible, he died. He died. But to the humble, the one who comes to Moses and asks him to intercede for him uh, with God on their behalf. What if he gets bitten? Oh, he tells all his friends, his relatives, anybody with an earshot, get me to that snake in the middle of camp. I don't care what anybody thinks. I know. I believe. I know what God said is true. He's going to live. He's going to do everything to get there. To gaze upon that snake lifted up. There's no shame. No embarrassment. No stopping this person. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. He passes by Ezekiel's tent and he doesn't even listen to what he's saying to him. It's God's redemptive work and he's not making the same mistake twice. He believes Moses, and he believes God, and he's grateful for what God has done for him. The poisonous snakes remind him what he's done wrong. But that bronze statue, lifted up, shows him how great a deliverer of a God he has. And he's going to stop at nothing to get there. Now, Jesus says, that's a shadow of him on that pole. That bronze snake, a shadow, a type of Jesus standing up there. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He's lifted up to take that sin. Your sin. My sin. Upon himself. Oh yeah, sin must be punished. It has to be punished. The snake bite's still hurting on the side of the leg, isn't it? But God in his divine justice, he punished sin and he gave it all to Jesus hanging on the cross. It's an incredible display of what, what, what belief in this means. He's going to give life. He'll take the punishment and he gives life. Nothing should stop us when we sin from running right back to the one we sinned against. Nothing should stop us, if you don't believe today, from running to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, forgive me for all of my sin because all of my sin is against you. The wages of sin is death. But you know the rest of that verse? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's what we call being born again, Nicodemus. We're all snake bitten with sin. The snakes are still around us everywhere. It's all about where you turn when you mess up. Do you sit in your tent or do you run to the cross? Now I'm going to close with these words back in John chapter 3. If you'll turn back there. Because I think these words have meaning once you know about what's going on with Nicodemus and Jesus. And it's a verse you've all heard before. It's in John chapter 3, and we're going to start right after this in verse 16. 
Jesus says, just like the snake must be lifted up in the desert, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And in verse 16, it says, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I ask you today, believe in what God has done for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do believe in what you've done. And like the snake lifted up in the desert, I believe in Jesus being lifted up on that cross to take the punishment for my sin and his blood shed for my forgiveness, Father, that I can be called a children, a child of God. And I pray for everyone in here today, whether they believe or not. If you don't, what's holding you back? God has done something incredible. The greatest thing in the history of history is you've done for us. And I thank you for it, Lord. God, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen.